0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, uh, I am Jacob Miller, an integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and I'm here today with Dr. Peter Manning, a professor of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Today we're going to discuss congenital tracheal stenosis, the diagnostic process, and its treatment options. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get started with the case presentation. A four-month-old presents with new onset respiratory symptoms, including a croupy cough and stridor. The family notes that a sibling has had a runny nose and a cough for a few days. The patient's breathing has been very noisy, and in retrospect, he has always been a bit of a noisy breather and has had poor feeding tolerance. An ENT consult was obtained and bronchoscopy performed. They noted complete tracheal rings and tracheal stenosis. Otherwise, the patient has always had good care and has no other medical history or relevant family history. He is sent to you and consult. What things in the bronchoscopy do you look for specifically to help confirm the diagnosis or guide eventual surgical management? Well, this scenario that you described
1: is pretty typical for children with complete congenital tracheal rings and stenosis uh, related to that. Um, They often will be symptomatic uh, early in life in terms of noisy breathing, but not to the point where it really raises too much suspicion until a few months down the road when they get their first exposure to a viral illness, which increases the secretions, a little edema in the airway, and they start to decompensate. Um, Because our ENT colleagues most often evaluate these kids that tend to be more significant, noisy breathers, they very well may have undergone bronchoscopy as the initial diagnostic step if the typical medical management of a croupy type of illness does not end up showing resolution of the symptoms. I think bronchoscopy is key to making the diagnosis of tracheal stenosis. CT scans or other imaging studies really can't differentiate between stenosis or compression. So it really relies on the bronchoscopy and somebody who's familiar with this anatomy to identify the complete tracheal rings, which is associated with a
0: lack of a membranous trachea that is characteristic of this problem. So now that we've confirmed the diagnosis, and now is there any other workup that you prefer to have prior to proceeding to the operating room? For instance, a significant portion of these patients have some form of congenital heart disease. Do you prefer having an echo performed on all of these patients prior to operation?
1: Yes. Uh, the bronchoscopy, as I mentioned, is important. It's important to get a sense for the proximal extent of the stenosis. It is not always essential to pass the scope through the full length of the stenosis to assess the more distal extent of the stenosis. These almost always start at the carina and extend to a variable degree proximally. The additional studies that I think are important are an echocardiogram, as you mentioned. A certain percentage of these patients will have an associated cardiac defect. Left pulmonary artery sling is the most common But a full uh, variety of other more common congenital heart defects are seen, and because we manage the airway utilizing cardiopulmonary bypass support, these cardiac issues can be managed at the same time. Additionally, we routinely perform CAT scans of the chest, usually with uh, uh, CT angiography, not so much to define the degree of stenosis of the airway, but to identify the adjacent vascular structures and to identify branching abnormalities of the airway, such as the presence uh, of a bronchus suus or pig bronchus coming off the the mid-trachea
0: to the right upper lobe. So now that we've uh, established the diagnosis and fully understand the anatomy as well as any other congenital anomalies, we can go ahead and proceed to repair. Now, the field has swung pretty heavily towards a slide tracheoplasty for most repairs, as you have advocated for in the past. And which patients do you feel a slide tracheoplasty is appropriate? And maybe more importantly, are there any patients you feel that it is not appropriate? The
1: short answer for who I think a slide tracheoplasty is appropriate is everyone. Um, historically, tracheal reconstruction in adults and children uh, have utilized a number of different techniques from simple resection and reanastomosis to various types of patches using either pericardium, rib cartilage, or the like. And it was really in the uh, uh, the late 80s, early 90s that slide tracheoplasty first became described and, uh, and really caught on. Um, the reason why slide tracheoplasty Uh, has so much advantage over the other techniques is that it's a reconstruction that utilizes rigid, vascularized tissue with a normal mucosa. And this allows for early extubation uh, in many cases. It results in less granulation tissue at the reconstruction compared to some of the patch techniques. Uh, And it's it's got growth potential, which is
0: critically important for tracheal reconstruction in children. So uh, when you perform a slate tracheoplasty, are there any techniques you use in particular to avoid devascularization of the trachea, as well as avoiding the recurrent laryngeal nerve?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. When we're, uh, we're doing an extensive mobilization of the trachea uh, in situations where the stenosis is virtually full length, which is actually fairly common, uh, it's important that the uh, entire length of the uh, trachea remain well vascularized. By limiting the dissection of the trachea to the anterior and posterior surfaces of the trachea and avoiding lateral dissection, we feel that we've been able to maintain adequate blood supply to the tracheal segments that we're reconstructing. And in addition, by avoiding that lateral dissection, you're staying away from the left recurrent laryngeal nerve and avoiding its injury. It's a little more difficult in patients that are reoperative patients where that nerve may be scarred. Also, in exposing the anterior trachea, uh, there's a packet of lymph nodes that will commonly have to resect, and it's important not to follow that packet medially behind the aorta, which is the other place where the recurrent laryngeal nerve can be at risk for injury.
0: And with regards to other surgical technique, can I ask you a couple of fine points. Um, when considering cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, do you use this in all of your patients? And if so, uh, why? And this is another one of those situations where it's, a, it's an easy,
1: always answer, um, particularly because the, the vast majority of children that are presenting with these congenital tracheal stenoses are young children in the first months or certainly first year of life. It would be extremely difficult to perform this reconstruction while you're still needing to ventilate the lungs. Using cardiopulmonary bypass allows you to completely remove the endotracheal tube, perform a good quality reconstruction with full mobilization, uh, careful reapproximation of the uh, tracheal segments, without any uh, time constraints, without any um, uh, tubes in the way. Um, if The tracheal reconstruction is the only thing that needs to be taken care of. This can be done with normothermic bypass without the need to stop the heart at all. Typically, our bypass times for isolated tracheal reconstructions would be in the range of about an hour.
0: And now, the incision on the trachea, do you prefer making it anterior on the superior portion and posterior on the inferior portion, or vice versa? Now, this
1: is a, a, a detail that we changed uh, early in our experience. Uh, the original description of a slide tracheoplasty by Goldstraw talked about opening the distal tracheal segment posteriorly and the proximal tracheal segment anteriorly. But then Dr. Grillo at the Mass General really popularized this technique and He made his incisions uh, on opposite sides. So the posterior aspect of the superior segment. And that's how we started doing slide tracheoplasties. And it worked well. Um, In terms of the result of the repair, I don't think it makes a lot of difference. In terms of ease of doing the repair, I think it does. Um, Starting the uh, anastomosis behind the upper segment can be a little difficult because lifting the superior segment up against the innominate vessels can make the exposure a little bit difficult. The reason we changed our technique was actually related to a patient that had a tracheostomy uh, already in place, and we thought we would be able to decannulate the patient uh, in the process of doing the tracheal reconstruction. Since we already had a hole in the trachea superiorly on the front side, we decided, well, why don't we just open up the anterior aspect of the superior segment, and the posterior aspect of the distal segment, opposite uh, of what we had been doing up until that point. We found that this certainly did facilitate uh, being able to, uh, to deal with the tracheal stoma, but also found that the distal Uh, segment on the posterior wall was a lot easier to see to begin that anastomosis. Um, And so uh, we stuck with it and and found that the uh, exposure for the entire length of the anastomosis was far easier uh, starting posteriorly uh, and distally down on the back of the trachea by the carina and working superiorly uh, up toward the front.
0: Now, you had mentioned uh, previously a bronchus suis, uh, a tracheal right upper low bronchus. If a patient does have this congenital anomaly, does this impact your surgical strategy in any way? It. it-
1: can in some cases, first of all, um, a bronchus suis or a pig bronchus, right upper low bronchus coming off the trachea, is a relatively common finding in, in this population. It's often the segment just beyond the bronchus suis down to the true carina that is involved with the complete tracheal rings. Some surgeons have advocated uh, uh, doing their slide a little more side to side rather than front to back in response to this. Uh, we haven't really changed uh, our technique uh, dramatically in any way. Um, I think the the trick is you need to open the proximal segment to a point a little bit above the takeoff of the uh, bronchus suis, but still being able to do a front-to-back uh, reconstruction uh, is not terribly difficult, even with that bronchus coming off uh, uh, the right side. It's on the segment that is going behind uh, the lower segment uh, and really doesn't need any extensive additional dissection, um, and the exposure for the
0: anastomosis is, uh, is not uh, particularly challenging. And when you're suturing on the trachea, what suture do you prefer to use and why? Yeah, in our experience,
1: we've used uh, a running uh, monofilament absorbable suture. Uh, Some groups have advocated uh, interrupted suture techniques, Um, we haven't found that that we've had problems with the running technique. Um, It's uh, relatively quick to do a running technique. We uh, try to get bites into the tracheal cartilage as we go, but don't uh, always uh, get a bite of cartilage. Uh, It's more important, uh, as with any anastomosis, to Pay attention to your spacing as you're bringing the edges together uh, so they match up. Usually one segment may be under a little more tension during the anastomosis than the other. So it's important to make sure you're uh, looking at a good size match by the time you get done so no part of the anastomosis is under tension. Occasionally, you will need a repair suture uh, for an air leak, most commonly at the very superior aspect of the uh, repair, which is usually very easy to see
0: um, after completion. So in uh, patients who who are discovered to have a cardiac anomaly that also requires repair, how do you approach that scenario in the operating room? So as I mentioned before, we do all the tracheal reconstructions
1: utilizing cardiopulmonary bypass support. So the need to uh, perform a cardiac operation can be easily folded into the plan. Our uh, uh, strategy had always has always been to deal with the cardiac problem first. Um, if it's a VSD, tetralogy repair, go on bypass, manage that. The most common uh, cardiovascular anomaly seen with tracheal stenosis, of course, is left pulmonary artery sling. Um, that can be repaired without the need for cross clamp time, and that is very important to get out of the way before the tracheal reconstruction because mobilizing and reimplanting the left subclavian artery gets it out of the way um, uh, for doing the tracheal repair so it's important to get that done first otherwise you wouldn't really be able to do the repair on the trachea
0: once the operation is complete what concerns do you have in the immediate post-operative period specifically how do you manage endotracheal suctioning
1: so probably the most common problem we ran into early in our experience with was plugging of the endotracheal tubes in the early post-op period Uh, And we found that this was largely uh, able to be managed by performing a good, thorough bronchoscopy at the very end of the procedure. So once the chest is closed with a flexible scope, we go down, confirm the positioning of the endotracheal tube, Uh, and also really clear the airway of secretions. Um, After these cases, these kids can have some thick, bloody secretions, and if you don't clear these early on, they build up, they get dried out, they plug up the endotracheal tube, and then it becomes an emergency. By suctioning out the airway very well in the operating room, you have far fewer problems up in the intensive care unit. And then up in the intensive care unit, we'd be pretty aggressive with keeping the kids on a high humidity uh, gas mixture uh, to keep the secretions thin and allowing the nurses to be fairly aggressive with doing typical endotracheal tube suctioning, instilling saline, suctioning things out, Being gentle, as long as you're not meeting resistance,
0: you're not gonna damage the airway. And how soon after tracheoplasty are you comfortable with the patient being extubated? I think this is a really important point. Um,
1: Some centers, particularly with other techniques of tracheal reconstruction, would advocate prolonged intubation to stent the airway. Um, From the beginning, uh, when we had experience with the slide tracheoplasty, we recognize that the the structural stability of this repair shouldn't require stenting with an endotracheal tube after the repair. In addition, a repair of this nature doubles the diameter of the trachea and shortens it by a half, which by Laplace's law, improves the airway resistance by a factor of 32. So from a logical standpoint, Um, We figured we shouldn't really need to keep these patients with an endotracheal tube after the procedure. Um, We tried to take an approach where we would get these kids extubated relatively early, usually the day following surgery. After our initial uh, experience with our first 40 patients, we actually looked back and tried to identify were there things that could help us predict who would or wouldn't be able to be extubated early. And we found two factors were uh, predictive of a failure to extubate kids within 48 hours of a slide tracheoplasty. One factor was cardiopulmonary bypass time, which we felt was a surrogate for the need for an additional cardiac repair and figured that probably wasn't a modifiable risk factor. The other factor was whether the children went to the operating room already on a ventilator. Kids that went to the uh, OR intubated already didn't come off the ventilator as quickly postoperatively. Initially, we didn't think this was going to be a modifiable risk factor, but we took an approach where we tried to get kids extubated earlier uh, before their surgery, give their airway a chance to settle down, get rid of the edema and inflammation, and then go to the operating room. They're not always easy to manage in the preoperative period with this important tracheal stenosis, but what we found was a fairly large number of children were able to be managed by getting them extubated preoperatively. Many of these children were were intubated in the first place for relatively marginal indications, and they could be, frankly, fairly difficult to manage on a ventilator, and sometimes were easier to manage once you got the plastic out of the airway. We found that with an aggressive approach at getting kids extubated preoperatively, our incidence of being able to extubate Earlier postoperatively started to rise as well. So again, I think it confirmed in our mind that plastic is not the friend of the small airway. And preoperatively or postoperatively, the less time a patient's on a ventilator, the better for their airway.
0: And with regards to follow-up bronchoscopy, uh, what is your preference on timing?
1: So um, again, many of these kiddos, we try to get extubated in the first couple of days after the surgery. Uh, we adopted a practice of doing post-operative routine bronchoscopies at one and two weeks following the operation. Um, At the one-week bronchoscopy, if the airway looked good and the kids were doing well clinically, we would often allow discharge from the hospital and perform the second-week bronchoscopy uh, as an outpatient. The vast majority of kids that will have some problems with their airway following a reconstruction like this, whether it's granulation tissue, excessive floppiness, you're going to pick up those things in the first week or two and that first bronchoscopy or two are going to pick up the vast majority of issues. If things look good, the endothelium is healing well, um, the figure eight deformity that sometimes we'll see will start to relax. Usually beyond that, we're not going to pick up uh, too many new findings as time moves forward.
0: For pediatric patients who have acquired tracheal stenosis, do you take the same approach?
1: Yes, we do. Uh, First of all, acquired stenosis in the pediatric age group is pretty rare. Um, As with the adults, it may be related to chronic uh, airway intubation. Um, In our experience, we actually categorized kids that had recurrent tracheal stenosis after a prior repair as an acquired stenosis. But our approach was really the same as for children with uh, a congenital uh, stenosis. A slide tracheoplasty was our preferred uh, technique. In some situations, the acquired stenosis may have a short segment where there's really damaged trachea and you need to combine a limited resection along with a slide. Fortunately, many of the acquired stenoses aren't nearly as long a distance uh, stenosis as many of the congenital uh, stenoses, so uh, they don't require quite as much mobilization of the airway, and that was another thing that we found with patients that had Uh, um, stenosis that was acquired after prior tracheal surgeries, it's a little more difficult to get as good mobilization of the airway segments uh, a second time around. But usually that's not necessary because the length of the stenosis isn't quite as
0: long either. One other thing that you've advocated for in the past is an integrated multidisciplinary team including a CT surgeon, an ENT surgeon, intensivist, and cardiologist. How do you feel this impacts the patient's care? yeah I think uh, both our
1: our team and the uh, the other team at uh, in London who has a lot of experience with managing these patients have both advocated for a multidisciplinary approach. Um, there's a number of advantages that 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 stem from this. First, these are not common problems, um, but they are similar to other problems. So if you pull together a team that has a lot of experience with unusual airway problems, It may not be your group that deals with the cardiac problems. It may be more uh, general pediatric intensivists, certainly the ENT folks. Um, You start to accumulate uh, a critical mass of experience of related problems that uh, you can tap into that experience for managing the patients with the tracheal reconstruction. So, from a standpoint of preoperative evaluation, uh, managing these kids preoperatively and postoperatively, and some of the the challenges of managing the difficult airways uh, become something that everybody gets a little bit facile with, uh, even though any one of these anomalies may be relatively rare.
0: Well, Dr. Manning, thank you very much. That was great. Uh, Thank you. And on behalf of our listeners, uh, we appreciate you uh, spending time with us today. You're welcome.